sometimes seemingly inconsequential events have a big impact. On September 8th, 2011, a single technician for an Arizona power company made a mistake. He removed some monitoring equipment at a substation located in Yuma, Arizona, and he did it wrong. This happened at 3.27 p.m. Over the next 11 minutes, this one act resulted in 23 different power failures, covering five different power grids, leaving 7 million households and businesses in the San Diego region, in Arizona, and in northwestern Mexico without power. The hardest hit region of the blackout was the San Diego metro area. It was essentially brought to a standstill. Surface streets became gridlocked due to the loss of traffic signals. And the San Diego skyline and all its neighborhoods were dark that night. Freeways in Southern California between San Diego and Los Angeles were even more of the parking lots that they usually are. The San Diego transportation system was shut down as there was no power to operate trains or trolleys. Eleven hours later, at 2.30 a.m., power began to be restored and was fully restored later that day. Just one action by one person affected millions of people for a little over 24 hours. We will see something similar, but vastly more important in our scripture for today, Genesis 12. So you can turn there in your Bibles. In our passage, we will see one speech directed to one person that will result in a series of events that will impact billions of people for all eternity. But first we need a little background on Genesis chapter 3 through 11. As we come to Genesis 12... We come through the fall in Genesis 3. We come through the judgment of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 to 8. And through the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. The world has come through a threefold crisis. In every case in Genesis 3 to chapter 11, we see a world that is happy to get along without the Lord without his leadership, and without his kingship, and without his fellowship. As a result, judgment came from God. The world, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, has been cursed, it's been destroyed, and its people have been scattered all over, and its languages confused. So as you come to chapter 12 of Genesis, it seems this world is a lost cause. And it seems like the hot lava of divine and overwhelming judgment is likely to be on the menu again very soon. There is one little reason for hope. One little verse in particular in these first 11 chapters of Genesis It is Genesis 3.15, where after the fall, 
the Lord God promises that the offspring of the woman, the seed of Eve, will have ultimate victory over Satan. This is the beginning of the story of redemption, of God's covenant of grace that will run through our passage this morning with God's covenant with Abraham. It will continue through God's covenant with David, and it will reach its ultimate climax with the new covenant and Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Genesis 12. These first three verses are a divine speech. God is talking. And it marks a major new stage in God's relationship with humankind. At the heart of this speech is God's desire to bless humanity, to bless His people. The word bless is used five times in these three verses. This is in marked contrast to the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Follow along as I read Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. While I'm really tempted to jump to verses 2 and 3 and talk about those first because they are so important. But God, in his wisdom, put verse 1 before 2 and 3 for a reason. So let's pause and take a look at verse 1 and ask a few questions for just a few minutes. Let's read verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is the call of Abram by God. We all have some impression of Abram or Abraham. I will call him both as we go through the message this morning. We've probably seen Abraham as a kind of father figure. After all, in Romans 4, he is called Father Abraham twice by Paul. And most of us have either heard or sung the song, Father Abraham had many sons. That's all of that will do, okay? We can and should think of him ultimately in those kinds of terms. But the Bible speaks differently about Abram before Genesis 12 Listen to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham served other gods before Genesis 12. Why does the Lord want to mess with Abram the pagan? Abram the sinner? Abram the idolater? After all, the scripture view Joshua passes on is they served other gods. 
Why does God call Abraham? You can't explain why God calls Abraham. And it's no different with us. Why did God call you? Why did God call me? Did I earn it? Did I do enough works to earn salvation? No. Was I smarter than everybody else? Is that how I figured it out? No. Was I more likable? Was I nicer? No. If you think you know why God caused His grace to come to you, a sinner, then you don't know yourself and you don't know the first thing about the grace and the mercy of God. For you must recognize you are a sinner who needs a Savior before the grace of God comes to you as a gift. We don't know why God called each of us. We really don't. Let's look ahead. Think ahead to the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. And listen to what Paul has to say about this. About those who have received the grace of God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have no room to boast before God. Abraham has No room to boast before God. At the very least, based on this passage, we can say God chose the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. Are you feeling built up this morning? Well, here he's describing those who have believed in Christ as Savior. The call is really unexplainable. You can't explain why God chose... Abraham, or us. For Romans 5 calls us enemies of God. You can't explain why the gracious God should call you or me and humanity. We just simply can't explain why God called Abraham. He doesn't tell us the why. It was up to his good pleasure, you might say based on Ephesians 1. Well, now let's turn to the promises the Lord spoke to Abraham in verses 2 and 3. Let's read them again. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As a whole, these two verses are a promise of blessing. The word bless or blessing is the key word as it is used five times in these two verses. Notice who is making these blessings happen. It is the Lord. Four times in these two verses, the Lord says, I will, I will, I will, I will in relation 
to His promises. You see, the Lord is determined to bless mankind. That is the emphasis in this passage. That is the point. God is determined to shower grace, not just on Abraham, not just his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, but on all humankind, on all people. You may have heard the promises of these verses referred to as the three promises of land, seed, and blessing. I've used that formula myself over the years. And while that is a fine, abbreviated summation of the promises given here, when you look closely at the text, there are six promises in these two verses. And the first five of these promises are all pointing to the sixth, final, and climactic promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. Let's look closely at the Lord's speech to Abram in these two verses. In verse 2, there are three promises. The first is, I will make you a great nation. In order to be a great nation, you must have a land, a place to live. God wants his people to have a home. In the immediate context of the book of Exodus through Joshua, this is called the promised land. And it's the place where Abram is is headed. The physical land of Canaan. The second promise is, I will bless you. This promise is tied to the first in that to be a great nation, it must be populated with lots of people. And in Abraham's time, having many children was definitely a blessing to pursue through prayer and action. We'll come back to this in just a little bit. The third promise is, I will make your name great. The promise is to make Abraham's name famous. This also flows from the first promise, since as a father of a great nation, Abraham's name would be remembered and honored. And just an interesting little note here about the context in which this is spoken. Back in Genesis 11, around the events of the Tower of Babel, when the people of the earth have congregated in one place and they're trying to build a tower unto heaven, a a tower of false worship where mankind would be exalted. They said they were trying to make a name for themselves. Well, God destroys their tower. God scatters them all over the earth. God confuses their language. And now he tells Abraham, I am going to make your name great. Ironic contrast between the Tower of Babel and now the promises to Abraham. Verse 2 concludes with the why. Why will the Lord bless Abraham in these three ways? The answer is the last phrase of verse 2. So that you will be a blessing. The Lord is sending these blessings Abram's way so that he himself might be a source of blessing. This connects directly to the last promise of verse 3, as we'll see here in just a second. So as we come to verse 3, 
we find three more promises. First, let's look at the fourth and fifth together. The first two promises in verse 3 are promises of protection, promises of care. Protection for Abraham and protection for his descendants. Look at the first part of verse 3 with me. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Because the Lord is binding himself to Abram with these promises, he will safeguard and protect his servant. Now, from our perspective, we know that he has to. Because throughout the history of Israel, various nations and peoples have tried to kill off Israel and Abraham's line. First, the Egyptians, right? They tried to execute all the baby boys when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Then the Assyrians, when they invaded They tried to not only disperse and and diminish the identity of Israel, they tried to kill off the kingly line, the descendants of Abraham through David. The Babylonians did the same thing. Herod did the same thing, right? He's trying to kill off all the children in Bethlehem so he can kill the potential king. The Romans did the same thing, destroying the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But God says those who bless Abram will receive blessing from God. In other words, those who support him will actually find physical and spiritual enrichment. Conversely, if anyone dishonored or cursed Abraham, he would be cursed. These two promises lead directly to the concluding sixth promise, which is the climactic and most important of the six given to Abraham. It is the pinnacle of the promises. All of them point to this one. Look at it with me. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not might be blessed, but shall be blessed. They will be blessed. This is an unconditional promise of God to Abraham. Consequently, Abram will be the channel of blessing for the whole world. No one will find divine blessing apart from the blessings given through Abraham and his seed. This will be the case from this day forward in history into eternity. God's action defined in this promise to Abraham is not limited to him or his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. That it is not limited to Israel alone, but it will reach its goal only when it stretches to include all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. Now, as we move on to verses 4 and 5, notice that Abram's Abram's response to the call and promises of God is one of simple obedience. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram went as God had spoken. It gives us some details, but the key is in the first part of verse 4. Abram went as the Lord has told him. There's an economy of words here. This was a long journey, at least 500 miles. That's one month of traveling at caravan speed. No route is described. No mode of transportation is mentioned. No weather report is given. No dangers that they encountered were reported. I mean, what restaurants did they stop at? Our senior pastor would be most interested in that. <laughs> Hebrews 11.8 tells us that at first Abraham did not even know where he was going. Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham, notice that. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Sure, he knew it was to the southwest. That's about it. He couldn't pull up the travel brochure or the website and take a look at this nice place he was supposedly heading to. But it seemed nothing mattered to Abraham at this point except obeying God's command. Moving on, let's look at the last part of verse 5 through the first part of verse 7. Here we have a couple of problems that are brought to the forefront. Look at the verses with me. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. The problems here, while not readily apparent, are seemingly insurmountable when you dig into them. God's plan to best bless the world through one who comes from Abram's line seems a bit impossible. Why, you ask? Good question. I'm going to tell you. The first problem is the Canaanites are in the land. Not only just in the land, but the place Abram has come to is Shechem. Shechem is a place that is home to a pagan shrine. And also to the Oak of Moreh, which literally means the teaching tree. It's likely a school or a seminary or at least a place of teaching for the false religious leaders of the day is centered here. In other words, the Canaanites are many and they're entrenched in Canaan, both physically and spiritually. It doesn't seem like Abraham and his little family will be pushing them out anytime soon. But there's a second problem. It's also found in verse 7. 
in what is essentially a restatement of the promise given to Abraham in verse 2. To your offspring, I will give this land. And the problem you see is Abram doesn't have any offspring. He's 75 years old, and his wife Sarai is 65 years old, and they can't have any children because Genesis 11 verse 30 already told us Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Abraham has no children, and the land is firmly in the grip of the Canaanites. But let's note here, God's way is often to set up some nearly impossible situation before he saves or delivers, or in this case, keeps his promises to his people. It's kind of his modus operandi. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, where the Apostle Paul describes a seemingly hopeless situation that he encountered on one of his missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's modern-day Turkey he's referring to. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. It's a desperate situation. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see, when faced with these seemingly impossible situations, God calls us to set our hope on Him. God may put you or me or Paul or Abraham in a seemingly impossible situation. It may seem there are no buttons left to push, nothing left to try, no way of escape. Could it be he does this so it will be clear that it is only by his power and not by our cleverness and skill that we come out the other side? Okay. He does this so he gets the glory. And our boasting is excluded. Despite these obstacles, let's appreciate Abraham's response starting in the last half of verse 7 through verse 8. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. So he moved about 25 miles to the south. He's still in Canaan. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. That's even further south in Canaan. At the end of verse 7, even while he is near a pagan shrine and with many Canaanites around, 
Abram built an altar to the Lord in that pagan place. Then in verse 8, he goes a little south, but still in Canaan. He pitches his tent and he builds another altar to the Lord and calls on the name of the Lord in that place. There are two elements to Abraham's worship here. Perhaps even a hint of atonement. You see, you don't build an altar without making a sacrifice on it. It's kind of like when you get the grill out, you're usually going to cook something on it, right? I don't just fire it up for no reason. Abraham didn't build an altar for no reason. So he most likely sacrificed an animal on these altars. Animal sacrifice has shown up in Genesis 4, Genesis 4 with Abel, Genesis 8 with Noah. They evidently knew that this was pleasing to God. So he most likely offered an animal on these altars. He offered up a life as a sacrifice in his place. In effect, it seems Abram comes to God with atoning blood. He also called upon the name of the Lord. Does this mean he prayed or that he just praised God publicly? Which one or both? We can't be sure. But either way, it's a testimony to the Lord's work and Abraham's faith in the promises that God had given him. Notice once again, before we leave this, that Abram is open and unashamed of his Lord in the midst of a pagan culture. In fact, all of Abram's actions in this passage, from his obedience to his building altars to the Lord in two different places, and his calling upon the Lord's name, indicates Abram has a true faith in God. And while this passage does not specifically state, quote, Abraham believed, Hebrews 11.8, which we read a little earlier, confirms it. And Genesis 15.6 also affirms that Abraham had saving faith. So let's link some things together and connect some dots. The promise of blessing to Abraham looks back to the offspring of Eve that was promised to save the world. And this promise to Abraham looks forward to the descendant of Abraham who is David and to the son of David who will sit on the throne of King David forever as promised in 2 Samuel 7. And ultimately, this promise to Abraham looks forward to the cross, to the offspring to the seed of Abraham, who Matthew introduces in the title of his gospel account in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In teaching the Galatians that salvation is by grace alone and not by works, the Apostle Paul talks about Abraham, about Abraham the man of faith, and he quotes from Genesis 15, 6 and from our passage in Genesis 12, verse 3. Listen to Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. There's our promise in Genesis 12.3. Paul concludes by saying, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's ask one more question as we close today. Why does the Lord hold before the world the promise of blessing at this point in history? Why does he mess with such a broken, corrupt, and fallen world at all? Why doesn't he just put a match to it? Move on to the next project. And why does he choose to start all over to bless the world through the channel of this one man, Abram. I think one pastor had it right when he titled his sermon on this passage, For God so loved the world that he sent Abraham. This story of redemption flows through Abraham and leads to the throne room of God in heaven in Revelation 7, where the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Listen to the Apostle John describe the scene. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, yes, God so loved the world. He loves so many, no one can number them. He loves them from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. God so loved the world that He sent the seed of Abraham his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Abraham's call, in some ways, is like Jesus' call to those following him in Matthew 10. Abraham had to place the call of God over everything else. His love of father, his love of mother, his love of his extended family. He had to place the Lord and his desires first in his life. Listen to Jesus' words starting in Matthew 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus demands the supreme place of affection in your life. His call is there. He offers abundant and eternal life. So what is it that keeps you from coming to Him, following in the footsteps of Abraham? Let's pray. God of all grace, who invades what we think of as our space. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And we rejoice in that unfathomable mystery of our calling to God's grace and mercy that we cannot explain. We rejoice this morning that Christ Jesus, our Lord, died for our sins according to your perfect plan as revealed in your word to the gospel preached through Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.